today. Welcome to The Simple Plate, a regular feature here on KUMD showcasing some interesting local slash Minnesota foods and some fascinating local slash Minnesota people. This morning on the program, we're thrilled to have Brian Yazzie on the phone with us. He is a chef. He is a food ju- uh, justice advocate, activist rather, from Arizona on the Navajo Nation. He's the founder of Intertribal Foodways Catering. He has content available under Yazzie the Chef on YouTube. He is a delegate of Slow Food Turtle Island Association, and he is a member at iCollective. It's a collection of cooks and chefs and seed keepers, farmers, foragers, scholars, focused on bringing awareness to the cultural appropriations of the indigenous foods of the Americas. And perhaps the best part is he is doing a virtual cooking demonstration coming up on Thursday the 19th. It's going to be available online, and wait until you hear the menu. Brian Yazzie, good morning, and thanks so much for joining us this morning. Hello, good morning. Thank you for having me. Nice to have you with us this morning. You are going to be doing this virtual cooking demonstration in partnership with ACO and in partnership with the Niwin Indigenous Food uh, Market. Talk a little bit about your connection to those uh, organizations up here in our part of the world. Yes, I met with um, Ivy and um, and everyone at the um, at um, American Indian Community Housing Association a couple of years ago through. Um, Intertribal Food Summit, you know, and, and also through the um, Indigenous Food Expo that happened a couple of years ago, you know, coordinated by Ivy, you know, and just connecting with her, you know, and also getting familiar with the, the food movement or what's, you know, what's coming about in the Duluth area, you know, so that's how I connected with um, Ivy and everyone within that, within that area, you know, and I'm happy, you know, to not only do virtual cooking, <clears throat> um, teaching and learning during um, the pandemic, but you know, but I'm happy to you know, to stay resilient as business people and to help move forward with our food sovereignty. This cooking demo is just going to be absolutely fascinating for anyone who loves watching people cook, and I love some of the things that we're able to do now with Zoom and some of these virtual things because people can attend who wouldn't be able perhaps to attend in person if they had to physically be in a location. But let's talk a little bit uh, about, I was really interested reading um, about your work with and your membership with iCollective. Talk a little bit about this idea of cultural appropriation of indigenous foods because I think in a lot of respects, uh, colonists may have appropriated indigenous foods and we didn't even realize that we were doing it. So are there some foods that we need to to rethink a little bit? Um, definitely. You know, uh, right now, one of the popular phrases that's being used with the uh, food sovereignty movement is um, returning back to our edible landscape. You know, regardless, you know, we are all indigenous to a certain place and time. You know, we all have our own food cultures. You know, a majority of us, 
you know, and for indigenous people across North America, even across the Americas, you know, our our beautiful food culture survive <clears throat> not only manifest destiny but colonization as well. And not just that, it moved beyond that and it helped supply the world. You know, uh, for example, back in um culinary school, you know, how I got introduced to indigenous food was looking at textbooks and trying to find a certain cuisine that I could try and perfect before graduating, you know, before getting into the uh, industry. And I realized that looking at these textbooks and cookbooks that there was no representation of indigenous food. <clears throat> and I started looking into these ingredients across the world, and I realized that over 50% of ingredients within each dish across um, the globe are, in, are indigenous ingredients that came from the Americas. You know, so I focus on that, on educating, you know, and definitely being progressive with that as well, you know, helping to bring awareness to the forgotten food culture, especially in the Midwest area, for sure. Brian, talk a little bit about your experience in culinary school. I mean, people always watch too much TV and movies, and we have a sense that it's uh, very snobby and it's very rigid, and there's a lot of yelling uh, at students that goes on. But it really, as you mentioned, it really would have been a challenge for you to find, or was it a challenge for you to find anything that resonated with you culturally? in that experience. Definitely. I mean, it was, it was a foreign world to me, you know, and I came out with the phrase cooking in two worlds, you know, being on campus and learning, you know, different um, techniques and different um, cultural methods and, you know, with gluten, dairy, processed sugar, you know, but stepping off campus, you know, I have to exclude all those ingredients out of my mind and work with um, pre-colonial ingredients for my catering, you know, while I was in culinary school. You know, so so I came up with the phrase cooking in two worlds. You know, it was definitely a challenge. But, you know, having mentors like um, Sean Sherman or um, Carlos Baca or um, Natalie Duran, you know, having um, um, connections and having um, these these teachers, you know, who, who have paved the way, who help, you know, pave the way for indigenous food, culinarians, you know. So, so in culinary school, the atmosphere was more of a Western perspective, you know, um, but it was all about competition, you know, culinary school, you know, who, who's the best student, who's going to be making it out within five years, you know? So, but for me, I had to look over that and I, I just wanted to go to culinary school to learn the fundamentals of cooking, you know? So, and from there, after graduating, you know, I wanted to take my own career, what path I wanted to take. And fortunately, you know, while I was in culinary school is when I learned about indigenous food and how it was misrepresented and um, how it was overlooked. So that's the path I took. It's it's fascinating to watch, and, and we've talked with a number of people. As a matter of fact, we just talked a, a, a month or, oh, who knows, the time is very a very fluid concept these days. It wasn't that long ago that we talked with a student at Morris who came to Minnesota from Milwaukee, and he didn't know really anything about his Ojibwe heritage. He was not really connected to it. He got involved in some Native American studies programs at Morris, and he is excited about indigenous food, about food sovereignty, about taking care of the land and making these crops sustainable. And it's so exciting seeing people not only embrace something that seems to be so positive, but also finding exciting careers doing this work. Definitely. 
Brian, you, uh, I've been trying to put this off a little bit because I'm afraid I'm going to drool on our brand new uh, programming board in here. But um, would you like to talk about what you're going to cook when you do your yeah. virtual cooking demonstration on November 19th? Yeah, so I, I try to do um, seasonal menus and, and I try and, and have ingredients that are accessible, you know, and, and also, you know, looking at the... Um, the the food shelf and um and the the retail store at um the American Indian um Community Housing Association you know I was going off of what they had available how I created the menu you know it's a very seasonal menu you know it's very versatile it's a um heirloom heirloom squash you know you can use winter squash you can use um you know whatever squash is available right now with um so it'll be heirloom squash and chaga chaga soup and with maple and sumac glazed duck breast and walnuts. You know, so uh, maples definitely, you know, we definitely have that right now. And sumac was, you know, it was just out of season. You know, that definitely, you can see them right off the freeways, you know, but definitely recommend picking it when they're out in the backwoods, you know. And um, it's just a seasonal dish, you know, it's very versatile. You know, it, it can be served without protein, you know, and, and it can be a savory dish or it can be a sweet dish, you know, depending on how you feel about your flavor profile. Oh, I, I, anything that can be sweet yeah. and savory is on my list. Well, if it can be sweet, it's on my list. Can, can can I ask you, unless this is scooping your presentation, because I've never heard of, see, I'm so, well, I'm so clueless. I don't cook as uh, very much at all. Um, how do you cook with sumac? Sumac. So um, with the um, color, color industry, you, you'll see a lot of Mediterranean um, sumac. You know, if you go to different um, grocery stores, you know. Um, but here in North America, we have two different, two types of sumac. One is staghorn sumac um, here in the Midwest area. And, you know, they they, uh, they come up with um, seeds and it has like a little fluff um, on the outside of the powder. You know, and what we do at the kitchen is when we harvest these, you know, so we just serve it without the seeds. You know, so what we do is we pulse it a couple times in a blender and then we strain it through a strainer and that's how we take all the, all the, um, all the powder out from the seeds, you know, instead of just using your hands and getting your hands dirty, you know. So, um, so for indigenous food culture, you know, sumac is definitely used as acidic flavor profile, you know, because we didn't have lime or, or uh, lemon, any type of acidity, you know. So sumac has definitely replaced that, um, that stage of uh, flavor profile. Oh, that's fascinating. It's going to be wonderful, of course, because folks will have the opportunity to see how some of these different things are prepared. And I'm sure that you'll have the opportunity, as you're talking, uh, to educate your listeners a little bit about seasonal foods, about indigenous foods. Brian, let me ask you one thing um, in conclusion. I'm, I'm interested. I realize that, and I'm not asking you to speak for an entire people. I'm, I'm pretty much asking you your own opinion. There are some people, for example, that would feel that for um, a white person to prepare this meal, they might think it cultural appropriation. They might say, "No, go cook lutefisk or go cook something from your own cultural tradition." Whereas other people say, you know, for example, food builds bridges or everybody can cook anything they want. Do you have do you have any feelings about that one way or the other? Yeah, I mean, definitely. Um, you know, we, we all love food, right? It's one of our, if not, it's one of our main connections 
to gatherings and to friendship and to starting communication and, you know, to start new relationships, you know, and, and the work appropriation around that, um, with the organization that I'm part of, I collective, you know, we, we, we try and voice out, um, the stuff that most people are not afraid, but are hesitant to do so, you know, not just, just not to offend anyone. Right. But, you know, but we definitely need our narrative and our space of peace to talk about appropriation for sure. You know, and that's where I come in and, and you, and usually, you know, working with, um, non-indigenous people, you know, what, what I usually um, express or educate is, you know, know the landscape that you're standing on, you know, the occupied land that you're in, the indigenous land that you're in, you know, look at the landscape and look at what's in season and look into, um, you know, what tribes or what, uh, tribal individuals have, you know, vendors as in farmers or, um, hunters or foragers, you know, and, and supported them, especially during this pandemic and these holidays, you know, and, you know, and the appropriation to me is not having any connection to, to food that you're cooking, but you're also making profit off of those ingredients, you know, and, you know, and there's a lot of celebrity chefs who do that type of work that we also voice and call out, you know, but, you know, but if, if you're, if you have a relationship with indigenous people and the landscape you're on and you're paying homage to these individuals and not appropriating, you know, definitely that way you're an ally and you're supporting the cause for sure. What a beautiful way to look at it. And it's about uh, it's about a fundamental respect and acknowledgement. Brian Yazzie, thank you so very much for being our guest on the show this morning. What a treat to have you. We'll also, uh, believe me, get up a links so that folks can register to attend this uh, cooking demo. It's a virtual cooking demo. It's going to be 3 p.m. on Thursday, November 19th, and we will get all the information on how you get signed up for this. It's free and it's open to the public, but you need to register so that you can get the Zoom information and the password and all that good stuff. Once again, Brian, thanks so much for being our guest this morning. Not a problem. Thank you for having me. Brian Yazzie is a chef. He is a food justice activist, originally from the Navajo Nation, and now he is in St. Paul. You can find him on YouTube under Yazzie the Chef.